Welcome in to the OMR podcast. My name is Scott Peterson and I'm a digital marketing editor at OMR. We are thrilled today to welcome Hollywood superstar Ashton Kutcher to the pod. In addition to starring on the silver screen, Kutcher is an accomplished investor with significant investments spread out around numerous tech companies. He's a content producer working with the likes of Netflix, among others, and is also the founder of a nonprofit dedicated to fighting child sex trafficking. In this episode, OMR CEO Philip Westermeyer touches on all of these topics with Kutcher and finds out why he considers himself to be a terrible investor, which social platforms he currently sees the most potential in, and why he recently reached out from his home in sunny Southern California to a relatively obscure German politician this past October. All of that and a lot more right now in the OMR podcast. Thanks for doing this with us, Ashton. Um, maybe, I mean, everybody I think that listens to this knows you, knows who you are, like in, in general. But maybe can you just in, in one minute or in two minutes in your own words, like explain like what you did the past 43 years? Uh, two minutes for 43 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. I grew up with a twin brother. And from, from a very young age, I realized that it wasn't all about me. Um, we grew up in a uh, middle class family in the middle of the United States. My parent, my dad was a factory worker. Uh, my mom was a school teacher. Um, my my brother had a heart transplant when we were 12 years old, and I also had an older sister. Um, th my parents split up. Uh, my mom moved out into the country when I was uh, about about 12, 13, and so I lived on a farm for most of my high school years. I went to college for biochemical engineering, uh, dropped out after one year, uh, moved to New York with $100 and my Boy Scout duffel bag, became a model, traveled around the world uh, modeling for a year, um, realized that that wasn't the, the, the career for me, found an acting <laughs> manager, started acting. Within a couple months, uh, flew to Los Angeles. My first day in Los Angeles, I, I got a job on that 70s show. Started working as an actor. How did that work? I mean, do you, I mean, like, how is that happening? Like, this is like the one, I think, cutoff point where everybody else like fails. You go to LA and the minute you go there, you seem to have an acting job. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I was an actor in school. Um, did every single high school play, junior high school play that I could do. I was a member of the National Thespian Society, went and competed in okay, like okay. state acting competitions in Iowa. Uh, when I got to New York and I was modeling, there was a period of time where I wasn't working a lot. And I did a student film for NYU to understand what it was like to perform in front of a camera. Uh, realized it wasn't a whole lot different than the stage, but but the, there were some differences. And then I, I auditioned for that 70s show in yeah. New York and put myself on tape and sent it out and didn't get the job. And then I went to Los Angeles actually to audition for another uh, show for NBC and auditioned and they told <laughs> me I wasn't funny. Uh, and then my manager said, hey, I want you to go meet the casting director for that other thing that you read for and went, went across town read for it, then went, read for the producers and then got the job. Oh, okay. Okay. So I got a job on the 70 show, realized that, uh, in an ensemble cast, there was a lot of time where you were just sitting around waiting for your turn to rehearse or perform. I started a production company when I was about 21 years old and built up a team. Uh, we created a show called punks and produced the butterfly effect and produced a show called beauty and the geek and true beauty and a bunch of other reality shows. And a, and, a, and, a, and a couple scripted shows. 
somewhere in there, I started seeing buffering speeds just getting faster and faster online. Uh, and I thought all of this content is going to be digital content at some point, and we should start producing content for a digital audience. And we started exploring companies that could help us quantify the distribution and, and accelerate the distribution of content. Uh, met a couple people from the Valley that were looking at that space. And through that network, started meeting other interesting startup companies that were doing things that previous to the sort of explosion of the iPhone uh, weren't really available. All, all of a sudden, there was GPS in your pocket and internet in your pocket and all these other things, music in your pocket that were, were never in your pocket before. And there was an explosion of companies that were coming out that I thought were interesting. I tried to convince my board and my producing partner that we should pivot our production company uh, to creating content on behalf of those companies uh, and in, invest in the companies. Don't take compensation for the production of content, but just invest in those companies and build a portfolio of value that way. They didn't think that was a great idea. So I started investing on my own and, and writing my own checks into early stage startup and, uh, and then started to build a portfolio of companies. At the time, there was really one other person in Los Angeles in the entertainment ecosystem that was spending a, a lot of time in the Valley that I would go up and take meetings with various founders and they would say, hey, what do you know about this guy? And it happened to be Guy Osiri, who was a friend of mine. And so he said to me, we're the only two people doing this, let's partner. So we went and brought in a third partner, a guy named Ron Bur Burkle, and we all put our capital in and started our first investment fund, which was A-grade. We built that up to about $100 million in assets um, and, and then uh, raised some outside capital from friends of ours and people that we knew that, that filled in blind spots that we had, you know, whether it was in enterprise SaaS tech, whether it was you know other folks that had a better understanding of the underlying technical platforms that we were looking at. And so basically brought on LPs that we looked at as an advisory board. And then uh, we split from our third partner, Ron, and built our own fund called Sound Ventures. And we're on, I think, fund three of Sound Ventures at, at this point. And along the way, built a bunch of other stuff. So. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, that that that's a very impressive wrap up. Um, like starting starting with your media ventures, um, which one would you say was your most important um, production or, or or movie series that were you involved in that that's most impactful for your career? Oh, that's actually really tricky. That, I, I mean, probably the most impactful is that '70s show. It's not very often that the very first you know major job that you take becomes a running success. And fundamentally, it's usually the first thing where people believe in you that gives you a platform to be someone that people believe in. Mm -hmm. So so I would say that 70s show was probably the most, the cornerstone. After that, I think, I think Punked was really important for my career. The MTV show. Yeah, it, because it, 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 I made it, I built it from the ground up with, with my partner. There, there were a couple of key moments in my life. One was moving to New York where everyone said, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do this. But I had an instinct that I should, and I did it. Um, and it turned out to be a good decision. The second was when I made punk because all of my representation and everyone said, nah, you shouldn't do this. This is, why are you going to go do a reality show? And, and I went with my instinct and we built it. 
and it turned out to be successful, but it also taught me that I could build things, mm. that it wasn't just about acting, but that I could put together a team, lead a team and build something and make something that's original. And that's an important thing for people to know and understand in their lives that they can build things. They can make things that never existed before. Um, and, and for me to learn that at a young age was really powerful. Was it just coincidence or was it a plan behind you always like playing internet people? I mean, you had the, the, the guy on two and a half man was basically an internet genius and you had Steve Jobs, uh, who you portrayed. Well, the character on two and a half men. So when I took that role, Uh, originally it wasn't that character. So uh, I'd met with Chuck Lorre and we had conceived a character that I was going to play. Um, and then he became so fascinated with my life and what I was doing as a venture capitalist that he then changed the character to map more to my life as a venture capitalist. There was nothing coincidental about that. That was him making a decision okay. that he wanted to model the character after me. And then Steve Jobs was an intentional choice. A, I wanted to learn more about him. And B, um, I really admire him and, and who he is. And when I received the script and started investigating some of the things that were in there, uh, I just, I, I, I wanted to honor uh, someone that I really looked up to. So that was, that was a choice. Maybe you can say a few words on how the whole like moving image industry has changed. I mean, we all talk about streaming wars and the streaming platforms, and it feels like from your early days, the TV series and, and the MTV shows to today, it's a whole different industry. Is that, is, is that true? No, I don't think so. I, th I think fundamentally it's the same thing. Um, you know, you start with a, a, an idea, you turn it into a plan, you, you know, get the supplies or the people together to build it, and then you assemble it. The thing that's the only thing that's really changed, I think, is the distribution outlets and the ideas. I think that there there are some fundamentals in the kind of content that works, and I think the reason for that is there there's so many other. It's a war for eyeballs, right? But all media is just a war for eyeballs, sure. whether it's or or ears, right? So if you think of it from that perspective. There are just so many more outlets where people can consume content uh, with their eyeballs. So it's a time on site, time on channel equation that is being run across all of these variable platforms. I think that what people are realizing is you can have a ton of content that has short attention span, but that is high value, or you can have a a long form piece of content, but it has to have high net value across. And so that's why you're seeing all the studios moving towards these massive tentpole films that are more and more optimized for the bang that get people to catalyze around them because it's an economics game that is all built around the eyeball war. Okay. I mean, but it, it seems like, If you're an actor, what matters also is you have to have a huge social media following and that shapes careers now. It, it used to be all about the talent, it seemed, and now it's like about the talent plus the social reach. Well, the social reach game has, uh, is a function of the you know, promotional capabilities of the talent, right? You know, it used to be you get actors that are in People Magazine and Us Weekly and can get on a talk show 
And that those were the actors that you would hire because they could help you promote and sell right. your movie without having to spend more money, right? And they created these bifurcated deals where you would get a portion of your compensation for actually performing in the film. And then the other portion of your compensation came for promoting the film. And when talk shows, when getting on David Letterman or Jay Leno or Oprah was a big deal, you needed to get actors that could get onto those platforms and, and or get promotion in Us Weekly or People Magazine or one of those things. And those were the actors that you would hire and you bifurcate the deal and ensure that they would go on X number of talk shows or international talk shows for that matter. Now, because the performers have gone direct to consumer with their promotional capabilities, what folks look at is what is their social reach and then what is the concentration of click-through rate of that social reach and, and can they reach their audience to give us free ad dollars against our media. What's the most important social platform for you these days? What are you most active on? For me, the most important social platform is community. It's, it's a direct text messaging platform. It's only available in the U.S. and Canada right now. You invest in it, um, right? Yeah. Um, but it, because I invested isn't the reason why it's the most important to me. It, it's most important because uh, I think that most social platforms are made with the assumption that people are one-dimensional, that you have an audience of fans and all of the fans are fans of you for one reason. Therefore you have reached to your fans where you can say something and all of your fans can see it. But then they always run into a signal to noise ratio issue where at some point you have fans. I have people that are fans of me as a venture capitalist. I have people that are fans of punked. I have people that are fans of the ranch or two and F men or people that are fans of my nonprofit work with Thorne. And, and they're all different kinds of people. And, and you don't speak to all of those people the same way. And you don't tell all those people the same things. Like people that are just fans of my philanthropic work, they don't care about my acting work. And they don't care about my venture capital work. People that are just fans of, of my work in technology may not care about my philanthropic work. So community allows me to message people specifically, uh, almost like subreddits, based on their their interest in me. What are they interested in about me? And then furthermore, I can narrow that down and talk to people on their level. So I, I'm not going to talk to high school student the way that I would talk to uh, a my mom. So I can narrow it down and say, okay, for this is a message for people who are, you know, 16 to 20 years old, that are interested in my acting. And I can just post a message to those folks. Or I can say, okay, this is a group of people that are just parents. And maybe they want to understand, you know, or, or maybe I had a, an insight about parenting that I want to share. I can just send it to parents. I don't need to send it to everyone. And community respects my ability to do that. How many followers do you have on this platform? Um, I think I have like 135,000 people uh, on the platform. But the interesting thing is, is, whereas I have millions of followers on these other platforms, the click-through rates on community 
uh, and the open rates are exponentially higher than the open rate. So if, if I post a tweet, maybe three to 6% of my audience will actually see what I post. When I post something on community, 90% open rates uh, and like a 65% click-through rate on every single thing I put up. So it's, it, it is, it's, it's not as vast yet, but the ability to influence or the ability to share is much greater because the click-through rates are so much higher and the open rates are so much higher. Is the long-term idea of this platform to be a tool for people that already have like a name established through other channels, sort of like you, that then use this platform to, to continue their career on this platform? Or is it a platform where everybody can become a star? I think it's a platform where everyone can connect to their audience the way they want to. I almost see it as like a personal CRM. Oh, okay. Um, it, it, it can be a personal CRM for individuals or it can be a tool for companies where maybe you're a Nike and you're launching a shoe and you're launching it specifically at one demographic, right? You know, it could even be for, I mean, I, I, I've been spending some time on Clubhouse and when you have a thousand people, 5,000 people in a room, you can only bring X number of people up on stage. And so my new tactic is to go on Clubhouse put out my community number, and then uh, I, I build a filter on community where all of those folks go into one specific club or community on community, and then they can ask questions into my community channel, and it uses NLP to substack the questions so I can see if 20 people all have the same question and then hit that question as opposed to having to constantly invite people up on stage. How old is the, how old is the community as the company? It's like a year old. Oh, okay. So it's early stage, very early stage. So yeah, it's super early. So, so but it's, going... it's my new, it's my new favorite. Okay, and uh, say a few words on Clubhouse. I mean, you just mentioned it. Clubhouse is that going to be here to stay? Is that the new? Is that a new hot thing? And is it going to last? Yeah, there's no question. It's going to last. I, I, I mean, they they cracked the code, and and because they kept the platform really, really lightweight, they got a a really highly dense collective of people that have common interest to join and now the interest verticals are building one by one by one by one when i look at these things i i look for cult-like behavior where you have the cult of whatever interest graph it is um and there's so many cults inside of clubhouse like cults in the good sense mm -hmm. where you have people that are all interested in the same thing coalescing consistently And if you look at time on, on platform, it's through the roof and their growth is through the roof. And uh, I, I think it's hard to stop that kind of inertia and momentum. Do, do you spend a lot of time there yourself? I mean, are you there like once a week or twice a week or even more? Um, I'm, I'm there once a week for sure. I would be there more, but I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and they wake up awfully early in the morning. And once they're uh, in their, you know, quarantine pod school, I'm working. <laughs> and once they get home, I'm with them. And by the time they go to bed, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so uh, most of the time I just ghost inside a clubhouse and I, I put it in, in my ears when I'm laying in bed. So I, I don't really participate is I don't really speak in, in the rooms. I just kind of ghost around and listen to what people are saying to try to understand you know, people who have divergent perspectives to mine. But you don't, you don't go into those rooms with your, with your real account, right? You have your, like, a, like a fake account, so nobody's going to call you on stage, right? 
No, I go into rooms. I just refuse to go on stage. I go into rooms that are my account. I just refuse to go on stage. Uh, okay, 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 okay. But but I try not to go into rooms where I have a common interest because I generally understand the perspective of of the people in those rooms. I try to go into rooms where I don't have a common interest or where the demographics of the room are are extraordinarily different to me so that I can understand the way that other people are thinking. Okay, okay. You, you recently almost broke a German Twitter because you posted about a German politician or you, 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 I mean, it got into a conversation with a German politician, the, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, Saskia Esken, uh, here in Germany. Um, how did that come? Well, I, I don't know that I almost broke Twitter. Um, <laughs> in Germany, in Germany. It, it, it's pretty resilient these days. Um, <laughs> I'm a privacy advocate. I have been my whole life. And, and I advocate for privacy because I've been in the public eye for long enough to recognize the value of it. I've had my social security number and bank accounts put on public threads and had to rearrange things and go and re like, I've had, you know, life-threatening situations that are, are a result of lack of privacy. I've had my accounts hacked, uh, everything else. So I, I am a staunch privacy advocate. I'm also a huge advocate for children and believe that children deserve privacy as well. So Thorn, the, the baseline of my nonprofit is we build software to fight the sexual exploitation of children and to defend children. And uh, the problem that we have in the world around child sexual abuse material is massive. And the internet is the backbone of it. The, it's an issue that's growing exponentially, and it's an issue that we're building software to fight back against. And a lot of companies use software intelligence and AI to detect known child sexual abuse material and remove it from the internet so that it, it doesn't exist on the internet. It's illegal to have on servers. It's illegal to share with people. And so there was a, a piece of interim legislation that was being proposed that would be a continuation of the existing law to be able to detect and remove child sexual abuse material. And that interim law, basically the law was expiring and there was a proposal for an interim law to allow companies to continue to look for known child sexual abuse material. The privacy advocates on the other side were saying, we don't want companies looking at our information, looking at the things that people are posting. These companies don't have a right to look at these things. And we were advocating for, we agree with you, but they should be able to look for child sexual abuse material. So there was an interim law that was on the table. That didn't happen in time. And every month that goes by, that there isn't a new law that allows companies to look for this material. There's evidence in the cases for these kids that is being lost because the companies cannot look for that material. And all I was saying when I was reaching out to those legislators is privacy isn't something that is absolute. It And for this particular case, it would be really valuable for us as a society to have the evidence and, and you know, 
they continue to battle about it, which is exactly what I knew was going to happen, didn't want to have happen, and was reaching out to these folks to say, I, you, you, I mean, Sasha Eskin went, went to MIT, you know, like she understands how the internet works. How, how did you find her? How, I mean, how did you, who, do, who pointed you to her? Uh, we have a policy team uh, on, on our side because regulation really matters. So, you know, you don't want to build software into the headwinds of regulation. Um, and we work with a bunch of major tech companies to find this material. And we're helping, you know, rebuild the infrastructure that allows us, uh, when material is reported and comes in, to have AI look at it instead of have human beings look at it, like to, to basically catalog it, create hashes so that we can go, okay, this is a known piece of child sexual abuse material. We don't want it existing anywhere else on the internet. Let's hash it and go take it down in, in these other places. That's what we do. So, so we have a policy team that, that helps us understand where the regulation is happening that is going to impede the work And so they got flagged and it got sent to me and, and we got active and we're still active. And, and here's the thing. These politicians understand this. And so these kids' lives are now in their hands because they're choosing to not put down an interim law that just allows companies to continue to look for this material and take it down. It is more nuanced than that, but we've had several cases where we finally found these kids and, and the kid's photo was, you know, the, 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 the face on the mother's Facebook profile. And we could have found it, but we can't because the law is keeping us from doing that and keeping companies from being able to do that. I think that that's silly. I don't want to live in that world. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I, I get it. I get it. Um, before we get back to like your social responsibility, I want to ask you on venture investing. Like from the outside, it looks like Airbnb must have been your most successful venture investment in in, in terms of money. Is that is, is that a fair fair um, research? Um, I think so. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. I don't, <laughs> I I. I, I it, 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 in in one sense, I'm I'm like the worst venture capitalist in the world because they. I actually don't look at the capital. The capital returns are are it's like the contrails of being an investor, right? Like, you, you, so when you're the pilot, you're sort of looking out to make sure you're not hitting a mountain. You're not looking back at, at the contrails that your plane is leaving behind you. So, I I I hope so, uh, <laughs> and, and and I would assume so um, because I, the IPO went really well. What I see is the potential for Airbnb to continue to have extraordinary impact in people's lives, bringing the world together and making people recognize how similar we are, as opposed to consistently looking at how different we are. Mm. To me, that's the power of the platform. From that respect, I think we've we've been pretty successful, but can, can continue to be more successful. I mean... Among all your, we could we could talk for hours about all your investments. You made tons of investments those past years. Any other investments that stand out to you that were like different than others from a like economic standpoint or from a personal standpoint? So we we have a a, a matrix that we invest through. The first being is the founder, somebody that you would want to go work for, because we believe that as investors that we work for 
the founders and and you've got to want to be employed by them to some to some extent you know we've just met some extraordinary people along the way it's whether it's been you know daniel eck and spotify or uh ryan peterson at flexport or enrique from brex or julian from we fox or yeah julian the german guy yeah yeah german guy i my, my wife was shooting a film in berlin and and i i had my venture capital hat on as I always do and and met with him while she was shooting one day and was like, okay, I'll, I, I would want to come work for you. And I like what you're building. And so uh, unfortunately I wasn't in Berlin long enough because I probably would have found a lot more companies, but you know, ultimately, I mean, there's an extraordinary, yesterday we were on, on, on a call with the founders of a company called ethic, mm-hmm. which is, which is basically building the uh, the ability to optimize your ESG goals in your passive equity portfolios which is extraordinary you know you can sort of tune up or tune down whatever your passions or interests are so if it's climate if it's if if you care about human rights if you care about you know inclusion and diversity you can tune up and down your passive equity portfolio to meet the standards that you want to meet and still get the returns that you want to get. Like that's a platform that you just look at and you're like, wow, that's, that's going to, that's going to change the world. We just invested in a company that is in the autism space where they're trying to get people access to ABA therapy uh, for their kids at a young age and, and, and helping them get access to, um, the spectrum test to, to determine whether or not your kids need ABA therapy. The the innovation of extraordinarily generous and mission driven companies just keeps coming, and 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 we just keep leaning into it, and it's it's couldn't be more fun. How did, do people approach you? I mean, how did Julian find you? I mean, he's a guy in Berlin building a startup. How did he reach out to you? How do people in general reach out to you? I think I reached out to him. We were in Budapest. Um, And I was meeting with the founder of Ustream, which was one of my early investments when I was looking at media, at the media space specifically, and then met the blah, blah car guys, and then met uh, like Speedvest, which is like one of the number one fintech uh, investment groups in, in Europe. And then they said, hey, you should check out this company, WeFox. And then I reached out to Julian. I think that's that's how it happened. Okay, okay. And bef- I mean, it, before that, it seemed like your German investment uh, track record is not making you happy. I mean, there's a couple of German things you tried out, I think, already a couple of years ago, Amen and uh, Go Butler and these things. And I mean, you're also like, people know that here, but they didn't make you happy in the end. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say that they didn't make me happy in the end. You know, Amen didn't work, but it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that it didn't was didn't make me happy. I I, I met some extraordinary people, made some great friends. Felix and, and yeah, Felix is great, and he's come to Los Angeles and we've spent time together. And I've been to Berlin and we spent time together. And you know, just because an idea doesn't work doesn't mean it wasn't successful. And you know, should we have pivoted it or tried to pivot it? Yeah earlier yeah but we saw signals that it was working so we leaned into it and it just didn't gain mass appeal 
you know, there's a company called Gidzy uh, that I invested in around the same time. There was an experiences platform that's not a lot different than what Airbnb is doing with experiences today, but that was 10 years ago. Um, and it, and they just couldn't build the platform density around experiences to, to really get the engine going. And that's okay. Like it wasn't a bad idea and they were smart founders and good people. It, it just didn't get consumer traction fast enough to gain that momentum and inertia that you need to be a successful startup. You know, SoundCloud. Uh, there are a lot of extraordinary artists that have come up and been built off of SoundCloud and SoundCloud may still become a, an extraordinarily profitable company. We don't know. But I, I became really good friends with Alex and, 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 and that is worth it. And I'm talking to him about his new company, Dance, that he's building. So life is a journey, right? And if you're only focused on financial returns, that would be a pretty dull existence. But if, but if you recognize that the value can become, can be the experience, you might see better financial returns because you'll recognize the mistakes you made. You'll recognize what you did wrong. You'll learn. And sometimes knowledge is more valuable than money will ever be. How much do you invest usually? What's our average check size? Yeah. Uh, in our newest fund, our average check size is between three and five million. Okay. So that's a series A fund then? Yeah. And Series A, B, C. I mean, I, I don't think the alphabet means anything anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think there's, there's, there's basically like, we haven't built it yet. <laughs> that's, that's, that's one stage. Um, there's, we have a product market fit and there's, we're scaling. <laughs> like, those are the three things. And so usually we like to see a product market fit. Okay. Okay. And who, I mean, who, who do you invest with? I mean, I know you have your own fund, but like, can you explain a little bit about like the landscape there in, in, in Hollywood slash Silicon Valley? I mean, there's so many like investors now and also celebrities, athletes. How do you look at this? So we have several funds that over the years, like we share our deals with and they share their deals with us. And because every fund that we work with has a differentiated value add. Mm -hmm. And we can say they're extraordinary at enterprise SaaS. They're extraordinary in fintech. They're extraordinary in building an engineering team. They're extraordinary in whatever it is, whatever aspect they're extraordinary. And we try when we look at a deal, if, if we're there first, to go find the best co-investor for the company that's within our network. And so we have a couple funds on the East Coast that we work with pretty pretty close we have a couple funds in the valley that we work with really closely like like, like we have, for instance who for instance do you work with closely so we work really closely with thrive capital uh in new york we work really closely with general catalyst in boston we we do quite a few deals with the box group and we've done some stuff with union square and lear that's the east coast We work close with Andreessen Horowitz uh, on, on deals. We'll work close with you know, Sequoia on deals. Um, so that's the blue chip names. Ribbit. Yeah, I mean, we, we it, it really just depends. Like we just want to bring the best investors to the table that are going to help the companies the most. Like we always say to founders, like we're not going to make your company successful. You're going to be successful. We wouldn't even be talking to you if we didn't think you're going to be successful. We just think we can help you get there faster. 
we, we can bring something to you that you can't hire. What do usually what do other investors or founders look for when they especially go to Sound Ventures? So your fund are they coming to you because there's Ashton Kutcher there, or what are they looking for? We have a growth team that really focuses on like funnel optimization on on any kind of you know on on on, on optimizing growth channels for companies. So that can be relevant to consumer companies. It can be relevant to SaaS companies. And so we really try to lean into that. We have some pretty unparalleled marketing expertise. My partner, Guy Osiri, you know, he's he, he's managed Madonna for since he was 18 years old, and uh, and manages you too, and has done a, a ton of other extraordinary things. His, I think, is 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 a a brander, like somebody who's really great at branding. I I think he's one of the best. We have a totally differentiated, you know, business development chops. Uh, our Rolodex is fully differentiated from, you know, most other investors. And then just from being in the room with some of the best product minds in the world, I think we're really great at prom product. And, and, you know, we've done things that people wouldn't expect. Like we helped Airbnb find their international partner because of our careers, our other careers, you know, guy travels around the world and, and he knows people go all around the world. I fly, I end up in Germany while my wife is shooting a film and, and meet people that uh, other people just aren't going to know. And so I think that brings a lot to the table as well. Mm -hmm. But at the core, I think we, we're just committed to working hard. And we believe that any problem a company has, there's a solution for it. And we're willing to roll up our sleeves and work to help those founders get to where they go or where, where they want to go. And if they need a dentist or a doctor or whatever, you know, we can do that too. <laughs> Is there anybody in, in, in venture capital investing that influenced you that they like sort of like taught you the game? I mean, you like model and actor and, and from the Midwest, you don't know the venture capital game like that. I mean, who taught you all this? I still don't know it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that the most influential person has been Ron Conway. Yeah, I, I met him. I went to like TechCrunch 50 before it was TechCrunch Disrupt, before it was TechCrunch 100, and met Ron Conway. And he took me under my wing, under his wing, and you know, basically showed me the landscape. I think Paul Graham was really influential, and and Jessica Livingston, uh, Y Combinator. I just kept asking them like, when you choose companies to come into Y Combinator, what are you looking for? That helped create a, an understanding of what what to look for in a founder. Ted Schlein at, at, at Kleiner Perkins is, was super influential in, in so just asking him questions about cybersecurity and so we can understand that field. Mark Benioff has been an unbelievable mentor in, in our understanding of SaaS. Dan Rosenzweig uh, <laughs> has been extraordinarily valuable in understanding ed tech. Mark Cuban has been really influential uh, for us. And, and, and then our partners, like, you know, our peers, you know, Josh Kushner at Thrive, like he and I will sit down and just grind on a deal for an hour and I get to see how he's thinking about it and he gets to see how I'm thinking about it. And then you become better because you just are trying to surround yourself with as many world-class people as you can. And, and then you just read a lot of books. 
<laughs> is, is Josh Kushner the Josh Kushner that's also the co-founder of the Oscar um, uh, insurance company? Yeah. Ah, okay, the, the brother of, of the, the, uh, the husband to uh, Ivana Trump, right? Yeah, Jerry's brother. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Okay, yeah. Can, can you give me your opinion on a couple of like, the hottest trends right now? What, what do you think on NFT? So we're, we're really active on NFTs. I mean, and, and we've seen this coming for years. You know, we invested in, in Bitcoin uh, it, when it was at like tw 25 bucks a coin or something like that. Just personally, we'd, we didn't invest in crypto through our fund. And we've just been believers in crypto for a, a really long time. I, I met Vitalik before he ever launched Ether. And, you know, he explained to me smart contracts. And what seemed obvious is that the, the first application of crypto was going to be one-to-one -one value storage, which Bitcoin was optimized for somewhat. I mean, when Lightning Network comes, then it'll actually be optimized. But That seemed to be the first obvious application, which is why we're also interested in Ripple and XRP and got to know, you know, Chris Larson and Brad. So, so we've been really, and they, and by the way, they've been awesome to us throughout the years, just explaining what they're doing, why they're doing, how they're doing and, and giving us an education in the space. So I look at it like this, the, the, the protocol layer being the smart contract layer is there. And it took the value storage layer being BTC to, to start to gain maturity to validate that blockchain was going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. Now that blockchain is a thing, we can start to do really, really fun, interesting stuff with it. And it, it, it looks like the protocol layer for that is going to be Ether. It could be Flow and what Dapper is doing. Um, but... Assuming Ether does what they say they're going to do, which is launch the next version that allows for transactions to happen and thus reducing the price of gas, I think it could very much be the backbone of this NFT ecosystem. So, so the base layer is built. What needs to be built on top of that for the NFT ecosystem to really take off? Obviously, we have to have minting technology And, and you have to get to low code, no code on minting so that people can mint objects uh, at a regular basis. You've got to build out all the permissioning that is necessary in, in order to allow the sort of long-term capital flows. And then you've got to build out the marketplaces that will exist on top of that. So I think we're there at, at, at a pure play infrastructure level. And it seems like there's momentum around will for people to put in the work necessary to build these next layers so that an app ecosystem can exist on top of this. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of busts but, 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 were you like Were you surprised when you saw this auction recently at Christie's where this people artwork, I mean, basically it's a, it's a JPEG, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, the, you know, the people, the artist um, yeah. was so sold for 60 million or something. Was, was that shocking? Was it just, oh no, that's just normal? Well, you... You have to consider underlying incentives. So some people see it and they go, wait, somebody just paid $65 million for a JPEG. <laughs> exactly. And other people say, wait, what is the underlying value to the holistic ecosystem of paying $65 million for a JPEG? I'm not saying that this is the case, but I, I would look at it and go, all right, 
who acquired it, how much of the underlying token do they hold, what value does acquiring it at that rate actually bring to the underlying token, and so what kind of a multiple on the underlying token did they did they get? So whoever paid sixty five million, my guess is they made more than sixty five million off of paying sixty five million for that piece of art. So that's the way I would look at it. Follow the money. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so, so you're saying they, they also investors in either, um, the, the, this flow network or the, the current, so, so they're making this money back somehow. I'm not saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm saying, I'm yeah. asking the question. Yeah, yeah. Good, I mean, it's, it's okay. It's an obvious question. Yeah. It's a very yeah, good question. But, but, but here's the thing. These things, these things do have underlying value. There's, there's no question that there's underlying value. Like I, I look at NFT and this is going to be a giant ecosystem. There's no question. And we are actively investing in the space. Like, and, and we are not sitting back going, there's nothing, ha there's something happening here. We just don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to know who the absolute winners are going to be in this space yet. There are going to be some giant busts in this space. There's not a question about that. In the same way that we talked about two promising companies out of Berlin that we invested in early on that didn't get to the finish line. There's going to be busts in the space, but there are going to be winners without a doubt. And, you know, it, it, we have no problem assigning value to physical objects. And there are a ton of virtual objects that have value that haven't had ownership rights historically that are about to have ownership rights. And this underlying technology, anytime that we have a transaction with two parties that don't know each other or don't have underlying trust with one another, but they're transacting something that is virtual that can have retained value, it's an opportunity for the NFT market to go to work. And it's going to go to work. I'm, I'm maybe maybe uh, I mean I know that you're also a very like active climate investor. And climate is, is I think a topic next to uh, child child security that really is, is is you know moving you. Um, can you say a few words on that? And also like how does that fit with uh, with um you know crypto and all these mining issues? Well, so you have massive energy consumption issues relative to crypto. That will be solved over time. I think there's no doubt that it's that that's going to be solved over time. And it most certainly is something that we are paying attention to. It's most certainly something that we're looking at. And right now, the blockchain solutions that exist aren't efficient enough. But what does technology do? It creates efficiency. And over time, there's going to be efficiency created. I mean, we've been promised Lightning Network for how long that would create extraordinary efficiency. And there, there are some platforms that are more efficient than others that are built and being deployed. So that's good news. On the climate change front, we are extraordinarily active in that space. The way we invest out of sound is um, we look at cultural themes, find a cultural theme, find a cultural theme that's starting to get resonance inside of the entertainment community that, that we know that the influencers are there that it's going to be a thing. And then we invest into that space. We're 
we're so convinced that climate change is a thing that we've built an entirely isolated vehicle that's just focused on that particular issue. And and we're actively looking for solutions in that space. Are, are you bullish on that? I mean, to, I mean, it's, it's it's probably the the biggest issue for our generation. Um, and are you like bullish and positive? You're going to solve this problem? Uh, yeah, the, there's no doubt. I mean, y y you just said it, right? It's the biggest issue for our generation. It's the thing we care about the most. Huh. Consumer choices are going to be made based on sustainability of companies. In the same way that Ethic is building passive equity portfolios that you can tune up or tune down the impact of you know, CO2 emissions that a company has, and you can decide that, that those companies aren't going to exist inside of your investment portfolio, consumers are just going to start making decisions based on that. Like If the product that you're consuming doesn't have a closed loop system or recyclable system, people are just going to shun it because the, the closed loop system or recyclable system option is going to exist. There's no doubt about it. But do you and think billions of people are going to understand this? I mean, we're talking about like, yes, you know this and, and Silicon Valley knows this, but like there's billions of people out there all over the world. Will they understand this? Will they, especially in time? You just said it. It's the biggest issue for our generation. Our generation is going to have more buying power in the next five years than any other generation. And so they're going to make the, those decisions. I watch my kids at four and six that know what upcycling is. Nobody taught me what upcycling is when I was in school. You know, they know what recycling is. They know, they understand this and care about this and know that our planet is fragile. We didn't, we, even when we were talking about recycling when I was a kid, I didn't know the planet was as fragile. I didn't, I, I wasn't aware of that. Like I wasn't aware of the sort of long-term effects these kids have the benefit of their parents being educated on this issue. It, there's, there's no doubt that, that there are going to be markets that are built and, and brand, massive brands that are going to be built that are brands that just say, we can do it for the same price and, our, and ours doesn't kill the planet. Okay, Ashton, last question. I think it was a great podcast. Why are you on podcasts so rarely? Why do why do I don't listen to podcasts with you more? Why can't I, I can only find you on two other three other podcasts? I'm busy working. <laughs> Did Spotify I just told you about all the I just told you about all the things I'm working on. And you're like, why don't you have more time to talk about what you're working on? <laughs> I'm, I'm working all on All right. Uh, Did Did Spotify not reach out to you yet for a podcast? I mean, they have Bruce Springsteen on podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> All right. Okay. That sounds interesting. Thank you, Ashton. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Take care. Buzz.